Uh, good evening, everyone. And thanks, Gordon and Helen and Sandra and all the others for leading us tonight. Uh, how do you feel about your family? If I was to say, uh, hands up if you love your family, I'm going to assume that most people's hands would shoot up in the air really quickly, especially if some of them are sitting beside you. Maybe there's the odd exception. But you know, tonight as we get in, back into our controversial Jesus series, we come to one of the most surprising, shocking, confusing, and hardest sayings of Jesus regarding our families. And uh, many of you will know what's coming. But so far in this series, if anybody's here for the first time, maybe haven't been following this series, but we have looked at three controversial things that Jesus has said that we sometimes wish he had never said. And when we started the series back in February, 17th of February, we, we, we thought about this one here. If anyone would come after me, says Jesus, let him deny himself or herself and take up their cross and follow me. As it, as it turns out, we're going to touch on that one briefly again tonight. But it seems that total daily surrender and complete self-denial is required in following Jesus. And in our culture, that's controversial. And then Alan Wilson, end of March, looked at this one. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But according to Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's radically countercultural. And last month, we thought about this one. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister when they sin against me or who sins against me? Is it up to seven times, asks Peter. Jesus turns around him and says, no, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven or 77 times. In other words, what Jesus was saying, unlimited forgiveness that knows no bounds. That's what you've got to offer. You want to follow me? Unlimited forgiveness that knows no bounds. Following Jesus is, uh, it's not for the faint-hearted. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke 14. It's page 1048 in those red pew Bibles. And we're going to listen to the kind of next highly contentious and extremely hard, maybe even you would say harsh, saying of Jesus. And this little block of teaching begins in, in verse 25. And if you have got an NIV or a New Living Translation, you'll see that this little block of teaching is headed the cost of discipleship. And it was interesting what Sandra shared with us about working in Australia with the Chinese students. And for many of them, they have to weigh up the cost of choosing to follow Jesus. The cost of discipleship. Look at verse 25 with me. It provides the context. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to the crowds, he said to them, and I want us to pause for a second because what we discover is Jesus is, is on his way somewhere. He's traveling. And for those of you who know, you know that in this section of Luke's gospel, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's been traveling in that direction for some time. He started back in Luke chapter nine. This journey is recorded over nine chapters of Luke. So this is a long trek. 
And during the journey, Jesus is surrounded by crowds of people, including his original 12 disciples. And at various moments along the way, he stops and he speaks into their lives. And sometimes he speaks to his inner circle in private, whereas at other times he addresses the whole crowd. Well, at this point in verse 25, he now turns to the whole crowd and he aims what he says next at all of them. In other words, this teaching that Jesus is about to bring is for public consumption. Jesus is about to tell everyone what is involved in truly following him. And there's no whiff of an initial soft sell. And then once you've kind of signed up, you discover that it's nothing like what you thought it would be. Jesus is upfront and he is honest about the cost and about the challenge, and about the implications, and about the reality. And so he says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. How do you react to that? How, how do you think the original audience, this huge crowd reacted to that? If anyone comes to me and, and doesn't hate their family, you can't be my disable. Is that not offensive? I guarantee you some people here and I know some here know it is offensive. A natural opposition raises up within us, doesn't it? Victor Cooligan writes this. We can understand suffering for the gospel or putting away sinful pleasures, but hatred of one's flesh and blood, surely Jesus has gone too far. Do you agree? Apparently back in the 19th century, a well-known author, Joseph Renan, wrote a rather blasphemous book. It was entitled The Life of Jesus. And, and as he wrote this book, he, he seized upon Luke 14, verse 26. And he declared this, Jesus was trampling underfoot everything that's human, blood and love and country, despising the healthy limits of man's nature, abolishing all natural ties. As far as Renan was concerned, Jesus was a monster. Anybody who says that unless you hate your family can't be my disciple is a monster. So what do we make of this? What are we to do with this specific teaching of Jesus? Do we ignore it? Do we avoid it? Do we dismiss it? Do we dilute it? And all of which do sound appealing. But if we're serious about our faith, and if we're genuinely wanting to follow Jesus and acknowledge him not only as our savior, but also as our Lord, then we've got to wrestle with this. We've got to take it on board. We've got to discover what does it really mean, but more importantly, what does it actually look like in our day-to-day -day lives? That's why I said a moment ago, this isn't for the faint-hearted but it's for those who long to discover life in all its fullness because here is where the paradox comes. You gotta lose in order to gain 
you got to give up in order to get back. That, that seems to be the way it works in the kingdom. So let's step away from this verse for a moment. Because I do know, and some of you are already well ahead of me, I, I do know that it is so dangerous to isolate specific texts without taking into consideration the bigger and broader canvas of God's word. And what I'm about to do now, I'm not attempting to water down or soften what Jesus says to this crowd on the road, but if our immediate conclusion is that Jesus is advocating and promoting an unqualified hatred of our mums and our dads and our spouses and our kids and our siblings as a kind of prerequisite and condition of following him, then I believe we need to be really careful. I mean, if we go out of here tonight and think, right, Jesus is advocating an unqualified hatred of our family in order to follow him, if that's what we take away, then I've kind of really messed up. And I say that based on what I read and know of the rest of New Testament teaching. So for example, Jesus commands us to honor our father and our mother. That's Mark chapter seven. So how can you honor your father and your mother and at the same time hate them? In Ephesians, whenever Paul was giving instructions for Christian households, he made it very clear that husbands are to love their wives, how? Somebody tell me. As Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. So how can we hate our spouses in light of that explicit teaching? And if we do hate our spouses, then what does that say about Christ's sacrificial love for his church? Jesus loved kids. He often took children into his arms and he put his hands on them and he blessed them and he said things like, unless you become like a little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So how can Jesus then turn around and advise parents to hate their kids? Or what about the importance of brotherly reconciliation that Jesus taught as part of his Sermon on the Mount? How can he advocate brotherly love on one hand and yet brotherly hatred on the other? Or going back to that saying of Jesus that Alan Wilson looked at with us, how can Jesus command us to love our enemies and then turn around and call us to hate those who are closest to us? Plus, did Jesus not instruct all his followers to love one another and then say, as I have loved you, so you must love one another, and it's by your love for one another that what will happen? The world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another, and yet you don't hate. So I'm, I therefore suggesting that Jesus didn't mean what he said in Luke 14. Was Jesus just dog-tired after his long journey and maybe got his words mixed up? Is that what I'm saying? Is that what we think? What do we think as we wrestle with this? Because we've got to. Am I suggesting Jesus maybe didn't mean exactly what we think he meant? Well, yes, I absolutely am suggesting that. 
Because as Craig Blomberg writes, and, and Craig Blomberg, some of you will know, Denver Seminary, New Testament scholar, wrote lots of books. He actually was one of my uh, theology lectures at the time I spent down at IBI. But he said this, the danger here, as we read this, is overestimating the cost of following Jesus. Now that may seem strange. In fact, they, that may seem even more controversial. See, whenever we hear the word hate, I wonder what you think of, because this is what it all boils down to. Whenever you hear the word hate, what do you think? Surely we immediately think of an emotion, a very, very strong and potentially destructive emotion. And so whenever we hear someone saying, I hate you, or even hear the word hate being used about anything, never mind anyone, do we not react, do we not recoil? Are we not upset? How many of us have said to someone, especially maybe our kids, you should never hate anyone? Or you should never say you hate anything, full stop. Well, what I've discovered, and I have touched on this before here, back in August 2013, is that Jesus doesn't mean that kind of hate in this provocative statement in Luke 14. Although what Jesus says here is still controversial and is still profoundly challenging. But as I understand it, there is an element of hyperbole. Jesus is effectively shocking any prospective followers into realizing, listen, you need to be aware of the sheer cost involved in following me. And if I need to use shocking language to get you to realize that, then I'm going to use shocking language. And in the original, again, as I understand it, the word that Jesus uses here doesn't so much refer to an emotion, but to a commitment or to a greater loyalty or to a preference. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is in comparison You've got to be more committed and more loyal to Jesus than you are to your family. And Daryl Brocken, in his commentary in Luke's Gospel, and as he wrestles with this text, he, he says this, the meaning of hate carries a comparative force here. In other words, to really follow Jesus, our love for him must be so great and so pervasive that our love for our family pales in comparison. Now, this is still profoundly challenging. But if we turn to Matthew chapter 10, you don't need to do it. I'm, I'm going to have it on the screen here in a moment. But if you turn to Matthew 10, you, you find Jesus talking and using similar language. But this time when he uses it, I think he helps us to understand what he means in Luke 14 even better. So what he says in Matthew 10 is this. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, in comparison, Jesus has got to come first. If you have a New Living Translation of the Bible, by the way, in front of you, and I know many of you use that, let me read you how or show you on the screen how it translates this verse, because I think this actually really helps. 
a large crowd were follow, was following Jesus, he turned around them and said, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison. So the translators here have picked this up. You must by comparison hate everyone else. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters. And yes, even your own life, otherwise you cannot be my disciple. And so the idea, and this is vitally important and it's still massively challenging, is not that we should hate our families as we tend to assume when we hear that emotive word. But here's what it's saying. In comparison to Jesus, Jesus has got to be our first commitment, our first loyalty, our first preference. And all other relationships, including family, have got to take second place. Or let me put it like this. Our affections for Christ must be of such an intensity and quality that by comparison, all other loves seem like hate. That's strong. Michael Wilcott in the little Bible Speaks Today series says this, love for parents, spouses, kids, and siblings, etc., is to be so far surpassed by our love for Jesus that it will seem in comparison like hatred. So as we read Luke 14, 26, let's not be guilty of, if you like, overestimating the cost of discipleship. But at the same time, let's be very clear that Jesus still issues a radical and major challenge regarding, and what's, regarding what's involved in being his disciple. And so here's the question, or here's the issue, and it's huge. Are we willing to put Jesus first over our families? I mean, that, that, that's what it all boils down to. Are we willing to put Jesus first in our lives over and above our families? Are we willing to subordinate everything, including our families and including our very own being? Because Jesus does say here that we are to hate our very own lives. Are we willing to subordinate everything to our love and commitment to Jesus? Am I willing to put every other relationship in second place. Back in the first century in the original context, deciding to follow Jesus did sometimes mean deciding against your family, as it does so for some of the Chinese students. Deciding to follow Jesus sometimes means deciding against your own family. And it's not that people who make that decision have started to hate their families, as many of us understand that word. But what it does mean is they have made a decision to put Jesus first. And as a result of making that decision to put Jesus first, it creates distance and separation, maybe even division in families. And that's why for many Chinese students who head back home, it is so hard to say, I've found Jesus. And Jesus is the most important person and thing in my life. And he's got to take priority and by comparison, all other relationships are secondary. And so many families just go, no, sorry. If that's where you've reached, 
I no longer want you to be part of this family. And it's, in, it's highly unlikely that any of us here in our culture, in our context, will ever be distanced or ostracized by our family because we have made a decision to follow Jesus. But the question is, the question for me is this, am I prepared to love Jesus so much that my love for my family seems like hatred in comparison? That's controversial, isn't it, still? That's hard. I really wish Jesus had never said it. And yet, here is the pathway to life in all its fullness, the paradox. And so, as you read on here, it's not surprising that in the very next verse, verse 27, Jesus goes on to say these familiar and unsettling words that takes us back to week one of this series. And he says this, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Do you know the thing about this is, whenever Jesus first said it, the very first week we looked at this, we looked at it in Luke chapter nine. And whenever Jesus first said it, he only said it to his disciples. By the time we get to Luke 14, Jesus is now saying this to everyone And everyone knew that when they saw someone carrying a cross, they were on a one-way journey. They weren't coming back. Their life, as everybody knew it, was now over. And so whenever Jesus issues this specific challenge regarding discipleship and what was involved in following him, people didn't miss what he was saying. Everybody knew that whenever Jesus said, and whoever does not carry his cross, that what Jesus was saying, unless you're prepared for ultimate surrender, unless you're prepared to lay down your very life for me, unless you're prepared to give it all up for me, unless it's Jesus all for Jesus. What was the line we sang in that song? Was it ever only all for him? How do you you sing a line like that? Ever only all for him. That's what Jesus meant when he said this. Total commitment Jesus first, over and above all those things, our ambitions and our families. And in Luke 14, you'll notice then, what does Jesus do? He he tells a couple of wee stories, a couple of parables. And these parables that Jesus tells in Luke 14 are unique to Luke. Many other parables are recorded in other gospels, but these two parables, it's only Luke who records them. And one of them features a builder who's about to construct a tower, and the other one depicts a king who's thinking of going to war. And in both short stories, here's the point, you need to sit down and calculate the cost beforehand. That was why Jesus told those two. He says, listen, you've got to sit down and calculate the, the, the cost involved in constructing and building this tower and the cost involved in going to war. And so effectively what Jesus was saying was he taught these crowds of people about what it meant to follow him as this, this. Listen, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to need to count the cost. And so by comparison, I need you to hate your families. In other words, I need me to be first in your life. Committed to me before your family. Loyal to me before your family. Preference of me before your family. In fact, you've got to be prepared to even hate yourself. You've got to be prepared to lay down your own life for me. Total surrender. And so when you read 
Luke 14. You think, is Jesus not just doing his very best to put people off becoming Christians? I mean, is he not just trying to make it sound impossible? Because to me, it sounds impossible to hate your family and carry your cross, but that's not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is discouraging by telling those two parables is anyone following him who isn't aware of the cost. That's what he's discouraging. Please, don't choose to follow me unless you understand the cost that's gonna be involved. And so he's up front. His call to discipleship couldn't be clearer. Of course, it could be a whole lot easier, but it couldn't be clearer. And so there is no small print to read afterwards. Jesus is explicit and unambiguous. Here's what it means. Here's what's involved. Jesus first. Jesus front and central. Before family. Before self. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, that's what it means. If you are a Christian, please realize again the call to and the cost of discipleship. And the way Jesus finishes this little section of teaching is fascinating. Verse 34, he says this, and kind of this rings some bells, but it's in the context of this teaching. Salt is good for seasoning, says Jesus, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? See, salt can lose its saltiness and likewise, Christians can lose their commitment to Jesus. And our commitment to Jesus over time can reduce in intensity. And if you're a Christian and you recognize, do you know something? There has been a kind of loss of commitment or a loss of loyalty. Jesus is maybe no longer first in my life, in my heart, in my priorities then as the very last line of this teaching text says, here says Jesus, anyone who has ears to hear should listen. Anyone who is prepared to hear this should listen carefully and understand. And so, if God's word has spoken to you this evening, then my advice is, my encouragement is, please respond accordingly to God's word. Jesus first.